order to start this sermon, go ahead and start the clock and everything else, guys, because I really want to be careful. But in order to get us to understand what it is that we're going to do today, I needed some help, so I asked God to come. So God, could you come up, please? Okay? Now, I realize that to some of you this may look like John Bateman, but trust me, if God were in the flesh, this is what he would look like. Okay? I mean, the bottom line, look at it. Just, okay, you know what I mean? He's the one guy that makes me look small, which is good for my ego. Okay? But, I mean, just, you know, brick house, right? This is solid God stuff, okay? Now, when we think about God, see, here's God, and he's on his throne, right? And here we are. No, well, no, you, I want you big, okay? And so the point is, is here is God, and here's my question for you. How many of you, when you think about your relationship with God, feel like there's some distance, just in various ways. I know that there's some places where you're close, but do you ever feel like there's some distance? In fact, let me, let me up the ante. I want you to think about, do you actually feel like, that, you know, maybe there's some, like some things between you? Like maybe you had like something that you were really praying for, a thing of health for yourself or someone else, or, or you know, you're like in this relational place and you were praying for this relationship to survive and it didn't. Or, you know, you were praying for a job or some financial breakthrough and it didn't happen and you, you went broke or whatever, right? Now, when those kind of things happen to you, it's just not uncommon to get to a place to where, you know, he's big, he's good, he made the world, you know, he loves me and all that kind of stuff, but I don't really understand why he let that happen and so there's like this thing that's between us, right? Now, it could be, in, in a similar vein, it could be that there's something that's going on right now in your life. And it's really big, and you're really praying for it, and, and you're lifting all this kind of stuff. And you know in your mind that what you're supposed to be doing is trusting God. You know that that's what you're supposed to be doing. But this is really big. So, you know, you justify it by saying, I'm covering my bases. And you're doing things to work it out that you know. It's okay when you do things as long as they're in God, right? But you know that this isn't actually really in God. This is more like... Me, you know, trying to protect myself just in case God doesn't show up. See what I mean? Maybe, you know, you've lived a long time and, you know, you've, 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 you have a spouse and it hasn't exactly, your marriage hasn't gone the way you wanted or, or maybe your life just hasn't gone the way that you really wanted or, or whatever. And so, you know what I mean? There's just this thing that, you know, I know that God loves me and I know that he's with me, but there's this thing that's in my life and it's just... It's between us. See it? You know, uh, you know, let's just get here. Let's put this back here. Let's get real. I need something really big for this. Let's just say you're just having a heck of a time with sin. You know? I mean, there's just a sin problem in your life, and you just can't get rid of it. And, you know, you've tried everything, and you'd walk on broken glass on your knees and your, and your hands. And you'd do anything in order to get rid of this thing. And, and um, you know, when I go that direction, everybody always thinks sexual sin, or most people do. But there's all kinds of sins that people do, right? There's all kinds of places that we turn. You know, and so the point is, is that there's this thing that you just can't get rid of in your life. And you're just, you know, this is a, right? And so there's this thing, again, between you. Now, I could keep going on this, but just for the sake of time, I just want you to understand that, see, the interesting thing, the almost ironic thing is, the longer you know the Lord, the more that this trash starts coming between you and him. See, when we first come to know the Lord, there's a lot of crap between us. 
But, you know, you just kind of brush it aside. And, you know, it's about him, and you're doing good, right? This is good. I need the clock to go. Okay, so you catch the drift? But, but bottom line, okay? After you get rid of all that stuff, then you start living, and then things happen, and they don't always go the way. And, and you know, you lose that first love a little bit, and, and all of a sudden you get into this relationship over the long haul. And just like any relationship, right, there's just stuff that piles up in between two people in the course of a life. doesn't mean you still don't love each other. doesn't mean you still can't talk. doesn't mean you're still not, you know, all this kind of stuff. But there's stuff behind you. Do you see it? Right? We're going to kill that today. We're going to kill the spirit that's behind that so that you'll never, ever think that ever again, no matter what. That's where we're going today. So God... I want, I want to say, God, could you take a seat? John, could you take a seat? God, could you stay here? <laughs> okay. Uh, Kathy Knox is the one that's going to pray for this sermon. So, Kathy, I love this, and you're going to love this sermon. So lift up the sermon, lift up another church too, would you? Thank you, Abba. Thank you so much, Lord, for allowing us to gather together as a family this morning and to hear from the Lou's and just spend some time loving on them today, Lord God. I am excited about this message, Lord. I need to know how to get the stuff that's between me and you in my life, get it gone. Amen. So, Father, that's what I asked for this morning. Lord, may there be an openness between us and your Holy Spirit this morning that we may receive from you everything that you want us to learn, that you want us to know. And, Lord, I pray for Kurt as he ministers this morning, Lord God, that the words that you've given him, the thoughts that you've given him, the ideas that you've given him, Lord, will become forward Amen. clear and uh, easy for us to understand, regardless of where we are, Lord God. Open our hearts this morning. Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for the Carmel Assembly, Kehilat HaKarmel in Haifa, Israel. Thank you for the work that they're doing there, Lord, among the Jews and the Arabs in that vicinity, Lord. I pray, Lord, that this morning that they would reach out to their Messiah and know you, Lord Jesus. Thank Father, you, Lord. thank you, Lord. We just commit this whole service to you, every part and portion of it, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to lift up you, Prez, too. University Press, what an amazing church this has been for so long, and there's a reason why, but God, let the word of God come forth from that place so strongly today. Thank you, Lord. The reason why I bring this up is because Karen and Dean Johnson are here, and you guys hear about the stuff that we do with all the pastors and everything else, and they are right at the heart of that. Could you guys just stand up really quickly? Would you guys say thank you to these guys for what they're doing on the east side with the body of Christ? It's... It's quite remarkable. In particular, what she's doing is, is getting the pastor's wives together to where they're developing these really close relationships. And let me just tell you, because of the work that she's doing and others are doing in the, in the organization that she's in and other ones, that's why we're having this multi-church event down at the park, June or August 26th. That's the reason why, because the pastors, the wives, the staffs, the people have gotten to love each other so much that we want to be together. So it's a really cool thing that's going on. Thank you for that work, and God bless you in it more and more, okay? It really is amazing what the Lord's doing. Okay, so um, we're in soap, 
okay? And we got our nice little illustration here of how that works. And so soap is essentially simply this, and that is, it's, oops, oops, just a sec, that was my bad, okay? I thought I had an image there. But anyway, soap is a way of reading the Bible, okay? And there's lots of different ways of reading the Bible, and what we really care about is that however you read the Bible, that it's alive to you. If you read it like a book and you're just getting information from it, that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is the living word, and it is meant to speak to you on a daily basis, Okay, God is trying to communicate, and he's doing through, through, through the word. So, just in order to show you quickly how you can do soap easily if you're not currently, and we have a particular plan for it, what we do is, this is, a, this is our website, and you see the cursor coming across, and you see the lower register, you click soap, you can go down here and download the soap schedule, or right there is the days, and right there I just clicked on a particular day, and that pops you right to Bible Gateway, and you'll see there's a couple of Psalms that we're going to scroll down through, and then there's a New Testament passage. So it's a little old and a little new, and what we're doing is this is our Bible reading plan, and then what you do with all of that is, is you do what we call SOAP, which is Scripture, Observation, Application, and Prayer. Now simply what that means is, is as you're reading the passage, you're just looking for speed bumps. You're not looking for, it's fine. Uh, you're not looking for the, all the stuff, right? You're not looking for the whole passage and to exegete every word of it. You're looking for, in that word today, something stood out. And then observe. Why? Now, you can write this down or you can do it mentally. I think if you practice by writing it down in the first hand, I think you get better and better at it to where it comes more naturally so that you're interacting with Scripture. But bottom line is, you just make observations about it, and then you get to a place to where you feel like God has revealed something to you, and anytime God reveals something to you, there's always a natural application of that. So you, will, you say, this is the application. You could write it down again, and then you pray about it. God, make this come to pass in my life, and then for devotionals, you go into a, a relational prayer with God, right? So that's what soap is, so that nobody's lost on what this is, and I just highly encourage everybody to do it, and communally, because I think God can do stuff with us together that he can't do with us individually. But if you have some other plan, I love you, as long as God's speaking to you, that's what's really important, okay? Now, having said that, these are the soaps that were for this week, and I, on this whole series, what we're doing is, me and other preachers, we're picking out a particular day, and a particular passage, and, you know, a particular old or new, and then a particular passage within it, and then that's what we're going to preach about. So just doing that, does anybody know which one I might have done this week? And I gave you a huge hint by just doing the little illustration that I did. Any guesses? I know this would be just, like, totally impossible, because every single verse could be a soap by itself. But on Thursday, the one that I just showed you, okay, there was this passage, and it's John 11. And what that is, is the raising of Lazarus. That's one of the reasons why one of the soap people said Lazarus. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole story, because remember, when we're doing a soap, you can do a whole context if you want. Maybe that's the thing that stood out. But I want to show you, I'm, I just picked out one little phrase. In some ways, it wasn't even fair to pick it out that way. But there was a phrase in this story of Lazarus raising again that quickened to me. Briefly, to bring you up to speed on what the story is, real simple. Jesus is in one town. A family that he loves is in another town. It's Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. They're all brothers, they're brothers and sisters. And what happens is he hears that Lazarus is sick. He does not go right away. There's a good soap passage for you right there, right? But bottom line is he doesn't go right away. And... He stays for two days until he knows that he's dead. There's another good soap passage, right? I mean, 
He waited till he knew it was dead? Is that how you think God works? The stuff of you, is, you know, he waits till it's dead? You know? Okay. But anyway, that's not the one I did. So bottom line, then he shows up. Now, as he's showing up, as he's coming, as it's even talking about it, the part that jumped out at me, the, the speed bump that hit me and just kind of went, wow, was this one. Now, Jesus loved Martha. No, no, no. It's Mary, it's Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Jesus loves Mary. Mary's the one that pours out perfume on his feet. Mary's the one that, I'll talk about it in a second, but that does the right things. Well, let's do it right now. Mary's the one that, remember, at another point in time, Jesus has come to them, and, and you know, they're sit down, and Jesus is teaching, and where's Martha? She's in the kitchen. Now, it's a small, it's, you know, these are not big houses, and you can hear, so it's not like she's not hearing anything, you know, but she's also doing something else, and she comes in and sees her sister sitting there, and this is not what women should be doing, and, you know, come on, Jesus, you know, help me out here, you know, get her to come and help me, you know, she's just kind of a layabout, you know, I mean, and, and Jesus' response is, is, Martha, Martha, chill, not cool. Mary, here at my feet, listening to what I'm saying, concentrating, eating the bread of life. I mean, what you're doing, you know, this is business. To the point that Martha becomes what to us, even to today? Martha becomes a way of describing something that's kind of messing up and not keeping things first. That's what Martha is. In fact, in this passage in Lazarus, you know what's just about to happen. Jesus comes to Martha, sees him first. Jesus says, you know, she says, if you'd have been here, you wouldn't have died. You'll see him again. Oh, I know. I'll see him when he rises again. Jesus, no, that's not it, but whatever. So he goes on. He talks to Mary. Then, then he gets to the, right, and he says, roll away the stone. And who is it that stops him, tries to stop him? Martha. You can't roll away the stone. It's going to stink. He's been in there for days. This is not good. Martha, didn't I tell you? Now, when I saw this, that's what flooded into my mind. That was a speed bump. No, now Jesus loved Mary. Now, I do want to say Jesus does love Mary. See, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. He loves them all. But, but if I was writing this book, afterwards, looking back, I would say, now Jesus loved Mary, Martha too, and Lazarus. But Mary's the one that gets the emphasis. And yet here, now there may be lots of reasons why that is. It doesn't do us any good to speculate it for what I'm doing. What I'm doing right now is I look at that and I see that Jesus loved Martha. And what it did in me was it made me say, how many other times do we see that being said about Jesus, that he loves someone? We ought to see that a ton, right? I mean, come on. Jesus, you know, you go to other religions like Islam and they'll talk about Jesus and how much he loved. You go to other, you know, the, you know, Buddhists will talk about Jesus as the example of love. Gandhi talks about Jesus, the example of love that motivated him. See what I mean? So this is legendary, his love. So I Googled, or I, didn't, I Bible searched, Jesus loved, and then who? Right? Expecting to get a whole lot of things. You know the first thing that stuck out to me? John. Why? John calls himself what? The one whom Jesus loved. You know what John never calls himself? John. <laughs> he never refers to himself as John. He only refers to himself as the one who Jesus loved. Now, I just need to stop for a second here. And I need to process something because it's going to come back later. 
If you were writing a letter to somebody about God, is this how you would refer to yourself? Tell me. I don't think so. See, because the stuff, I know he loves me, but, you know, I mean, that's just not, I know that he loves me. But I wouldn't write a letter. And John wasn't saying I'm the only one that he loved, by the way. He was just saying the most important thing in my life, the thing that changed everything, was that Jesus loved me. This is how I identify myself, that Jesus loved me. I want you to close your eyes for a second, and I want you to do a little experiment. I want you to see something in the physical body. I want you to say to yourself, I'm the one whom Jesus loved. Close your eyes and say it. Say it over and over. I'm the one who Jesus loved. I'm the one who Jesus loved. I'm the one who Jesus loved. Now open your eyes for a second. Did something happen in you? Did it make you feel good inside? Did it make you feel better? Just, just really dwelling on, meditating on, concentrating on, just really allowing your mind to focus on that God, Jesus, I'm the one that Jesus loved. Me. Not Jesus loved all mankind. I'm the one that Jesus loved. That's my identity. It does something inside of us, right? It like, it's like eating a little bit of ice cream or something. It sort of gives you a little endorphin rush. Makes you feel good. Literally, biochemically, it makes you feel good. If you can say it. If you can't say it, well, you really need to listen to this sermon. Okay? So the point is, I, okay, let's just take John out. That was a really important insight, but, but let's just take John out. How many other times do you think it is said that Jesus loved somebody else? How many other times do you think it said that? I know you already looked it up in your calculator or your phone, didn't you? Actually, you know what? There's only one other person where the phrase Jesus loved is used than with Martha. There's only one other place. You know where it is? Rich young ruler. You're so good at this stuff, Rich. What is your brain anyway? Is it just like this? I, I want your brain, okay? All right, I don't want your hips. Those are, you can keep those, okay? He got, his, he got his knees replaced and his hips, and he's got to get everything replaced. So I just want the brain part, okay? But, but, I, but I just want you to, okay, the only other place is the rich young ruler. Now, now here's when it happens, though. Now watch what the scenario is. The rich young ruler is coming up to Jesus, and before he says anything, and Jesus knows everything is about to happen, but before he says anything, Jesus looked on him and loved him. It says it this way. It says, actually, I got that just slightly wrong. What he says is, the rich young ruler, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, you know what you must do. You must keep this and 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 keep this. And then, and then Jesus looks on him. And he says, there's only one thing that you're missing. you got to sell everything and give it to the poor. Which, of course, he does. Because Jesus loved him. And after all, if Jesus loves you, that means you do everything that he says. What if it wasn't like that? What if what he did was he walked away sad that he wasn't able to do what Jesus said? 
And Jesus knew that beforehand. And beforehand, Jesus said about him that he loved him. Do you realize what we just said? Two times in Bible it is said that the, Jesus loves somebody, and both times it's about people that we would not have highlighted as the ones that Jesus loved. We would have highlighted John, right? I mean, right? We would have highlighted Peter. Oh, well, wait, we can't highlight Peter because, I mean, all that stuff that he did. We'd have highlighted, um, you know, who? Paul, the one who killed all those Christians, remember? Well, no, we can't really say him. Who, who would we have... If we think about, see, well, here's what's not happening. The scripture is not saying Jesus loved people. And they had to point out, because we know that Jesus loves everybody. And so it had to point out with people that screw up that Jesus still loved them. Because, you know, they are screw ups. And so it had to point that out. This is not what's happening. And yet I want you to see something. When I say that, our minds kind of go, oh yeah, that's what it is. If he only said it two times, and he meant to only say it two times, and he used it about two people that were screw-ups, he must be saying he needed to make it clear that he still loved them even though they were screw-ups. Because that's how our brains do it. And that's a lie. Here's what he's saying. That he loved them. Here's what he's not saying. He loved them even though they were screw-ups. Here's what he's saying. He really loved them. He just loved them. He loved them. Thought they were wonderful. Even though, along with a whole lot of other people. See, what's being said is a pure thing. Jesus loved them. Now, there's a truth in here that if I was doing a soap, I would just go to an application and I would say, I'm the one that Jesus loves, and I need to pray about that. I need to get it into my heart. And I, my soap would be over with. But this is a sermon, and my sermons tend to be a little too long. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it and go a sermon direction with it, okay? All right? Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you to a book. Because, see, I believe something about life. I believe all of life is a soap. I believe all of life is a series of speed bumps. Little bitty moments that if we would take the time and let the Holy Spirit quicken us to that there was something about this moment that we're supposed to pay attention to, that we would pay attention to it and it would become something more in our lives. And I think most of us blaze right over the speed bumps and you know, eventually we end up taking out the whole undercarriage of our lives. Because we just keep blowing through these speed bumps. When as, whereas God is trying to build something in us. So I'm at a wedding a uh, week and a couple of days ago, because on Thursday night, and, and it's, it's uh, Tim Lang and Christy Hammond's wedding, and it was awesome. I don't think they're here today. I think they're still going on honeymoon, and they're just, it was awesome, wasn't it? It was so beautiful, but, but Christy's dad is Chris Hammond, and he has a brother, Pat Hammond, who some of you know because he's the Redmond chaplain. That means he goes into fires and difficult situations that the emergency service people are going after, and he moves in there. So I'm talking with Pat. We're just talking about this and that and the other thing. And at one point in the conversation, he says, you really need to get a copy of The Cure. And I, I didn't think anything of it when he said it, you know, just think. But then he said, no, you really need to get a copy of The Cure. And I, all of a sudden, I went, oh, speed bump. Okay, fine. I'll get a copy of The Cure. Now, you've got to understand something. For me to buy a book, I buy a lot of books. I do read a lot of books, but on my Kindle, i got a lot of books that i got to read, and a lot of those books, you know, I want to read before I would have read that one because I don't even know what it's about. He didn't explain anything about it to me. So it would have been at the very back of my list, but as I'm doing this sermon, there's another speed bump that keeps coming. As I keep thinking about what are you trying to say that you loved Martha? What are you What's this... What is this thing, love, and particularly Martha, and what is this thing? And the more that I thought about it, the more all of a sudden I kept feeling like God was saying, read the cure. So finally, after, you know, 
four or five thousand times because that's what it takes for me. You know, I finally went okay. And I picked up the book during my sermon study and I started reading it. And I'm going to do something right now. I'm going to do something awkward. And I hope it works because I don't think I've ever tried to do this before because I'm going to read a fairly lengthy passage out of this. Now, this is one of those books that has a parable and then they talk about the parable. So I'm not going to read you the didactic parts. I'm going to read you the fiction part, the parable part. So it's a story. So I want you to just sort of let the story waft over you, right? Like just let it cover you. Let, let, just kind of image it and, and let it come, okay? So I didn't even notice at first. But suddenly the 10 feet in front of me are going different ways. I realize I have no idea which way to go. I'm staring at an intersection. Like this could go, and, and like this could make it go away if I just keep staring at it. That's when I notice a tall pole with two arrows at the, at the top pointing down each fork. What's written on them is even more confusing than the fork. One arrow pointing left reads pleasing God. The other going right reads trusting God. You're kidding. I'm supposed to choose between these two? I'm not doing that. Choosing one means not choosing the other. It's like being asked to choose between your heart and your lungs. I need a whole other way to go. I look up the, the trusting God sign. This has to be a trap. It's a trick. It sounds good, but what am I supposed to do? It's too passive. How's it going to make a difference? If God and I are going to be in sync, there's got to be something more than trust. If the issue is me, I'm probably not going to figure out my destiny simply by trusting that God can be trusted. I've got to do something. So I move over to the pleasing God sign, pointing down the path to the left. This has to be it. After all he's done for me, the very least I can do is please him. So I set off on the path of pleasing God, shaded by towering oaks. I'm encouraged to see this path is well-traveled, beat level with the feet of a million travels, many of them still on the path. I pass by several of them. I see a giant building looming in the distance. It looks like a hotel. As I get closer, there's written in bronze lettering across the front, striving to be all God wants me to be. Finally, something for me to do. I strive after success in my career. I strive after keeping fit. Why would it be any less with God? I, I turn the handle and walk in, and I'm stunned to find a huge open room filled with thousands of people. I scan the group, trying to take it all in. So these are people that are really living for Jesus. Soon I notice there's a woman, a hostess maybe. She's standing next to me, immaculately groomed, every hair perfectly in place, makeup accentuating her features. Her smile is wide and toothy, nothing about her out of place. Welcome to the room of good intentions. She says it clean and cool like she's been greeting people all her life. There's just the tiniest little shred about it that's unsettling, but I'm so excited to finally be here, I don't think much of it. You have no idea how long I've waited to find this place. I return her smile, grasping her, grasping her outreached hand. I call to the crowd, almost involuntary. Hey, how's everybody doing? The room goes silent. It's full of beautiful people, smiling people. Some of them, they have an elaborately crafted mask, but that's okay. I love masquerades. This looks like my kind of place. One man steps forward. His smile, like the hostess's broad, his bleached white teeth look as if they've been lined up by a ruler. Welcome, he begins to shake his hand firmly. We're fine. Thank you for asking. Just fine. Aren't we, everyone? A few in the crowd behind him nod, smiling along. My kids are doing great, and uh, I'm about to close a very lucrative deal of work, and more fit than I was in high school. I'm telling you, I'm doing fine. Everybody here is doing fine. Before I can reflect on how strange this sounds, the hostess asked me how I'm doing. Me? To be honest? 
I'm struggling with some stuff. That's partly why I'm here. I'm trying to figure out, shh, she interrupts me putting a flawless manicured index finger to her lips. She reaches behind a podium and pulls out a mask and hands it to me, and she nods her head with a curt smile, indicating I should put it on. I stare at it for a moment. Others in the room are excitedly motioning me for to put it on, so slowly I slide the mask over my face. The next thought, it, my next thought is it might be best to back off of self-revelation. I find myself answering, is this from somewhere far away? You know, I'm great, I'm doing fine. And everyone in the room smiles, broadly returning to their conversations. This is the room of good intentions. The main entrance hall, it's massive and ornate. It winding staircases lead to upper levels where cascading fountains are ringed with beautifully upholstered sofas and chairs. There's doorways leading to ballrooms and dining halls and fancily appointed living quarters. Everything is white and marble and gold leaf. It's gorgeous and opulent. Across the back wall, there's a huge embroidered banner working on my sin to achieve an intimate relationship with God. Finally, someone's saying what I've experienced all these early years. Early on, when I first believed, he and I were so close. Then over time, I kept failing. I'd do something stupid. I'd promise that I wouldn't do it anymore. Then I'd felt the same thing again. Before long, it felt like he was on the other side of an ever-growing pile of garbage. I imagined him further away each day, and his arm folded, shaking his head, thinking about me. I had so much hope for this kid. But he's let me down so many times. Looking across the room, I know... I know now that I can change all that. This room, impressive. The decorations are nice enough. You can feel, but really what you can feel is courage and diligence. You can almost taste the self-hearted, the full-hearted fervency, the accomplishment, the head-on determination. This is a Fortune 500 executive who's given away 90% of his wealth to charity. There's a lead pastor of a thriving network of the church that's doing dynamic. He's in such a dynamic communicator that theological insights are heard all over the world. I met a girl. She's elegant even in her simple worn clothes. She's developed nearly all the energy. She's devoted nearly all her energy to providing medical supplies to the untouchables in Kolkata. So many good-hearted people fill this room. They've devoted themselves to God, to studying his character, to pouring themselves into spreading his word, to serving humanity in the name of Jesus. This must be it. Soon, God and I will be close again. Weeks run into months in this room, and a slight unease starts to creep in. It gets stronger by the day, and I can't put my finger on it at first. I'm noticing many in here talk sort of semi-jokingly, semi-put down. It's a familiar but a bit off, and standing in this long edge, uh, standing on the edge of these insider conversations, I realized I never noticed how anointing or obvious subtle bragging sounds. Even through an elaborate mask, I'm struck by how tired everyone is. Many conversations, superficial and guarded. Several times I've caught real faces of people with mask removes when they thought no one was looking at and there's this deep, lonely pain in their expression. I'm starting to think differently too. The comfort I felt when I got here is fading and I'm carrying this tension like if I don't measure up, I'll be shunned. Oh, and with God too. Here's another thing. Despite all my passionate sincerity, I keep sinning. Then I get fixated on trying not to sin, and then it all repeats. Same sin, same thought, same failure. I spend more time alone now. It's hard to be in public very long before my mask starts to itch, and I spend more time preparing to be with people than I actually am spending with people. I can't seem to do enough to make these people, or God for that matter, happy. Increasingly, the path to pleasing God seems to be about how I can keep God pleased with me. One day it dawns on me that I've been doing to myself and everyone around me. I've been trying to meet some lofty expectation, primarily to gain acceptance, and I don't even know why I'm performing for them. 
to satisfy a God I'm not even sure I can ever please. Even worse, I expect everyone around me to do the same. So now I'm frantically working my way through the room, searching for someone, anyone willing to talk about what's going on inside of me, but nobody wants to hear it. It's as if they fear me expressing my concerns because it will expose theirs. So even though I was certain this room might be my only real chance of getting it right, I find myself slipping out the door. And how nobody even notices. I thought I'd never leave, and I'm crushed. For a few hours later, I'm, I'm sitting down on the grassy edge of a path, and I, I, there's a fork in the road again, and this middle-aged couple there, and they're lounging on the other side of the path in the shade of a tree, and the man smiles with a hint of disillusionment. It's one of the more natural smiles I've seen in a while. That place is weird, isn't it? I'm glad I got out of that mess, he said, spitting out his words. I nod my assent, and he, he takes a deep breath before leaning back and just go back to sleep. Now what? My eyes drift back up to that sign, and I read the arrow pointing down the road, trusting God. And I shake my head, and I look up, and I ask this guy, third road? Something else? Nothing? Even the couple across the path is still snoring, so I sigh. I climb to my feet, I brush myself off, and I head down the right fork. This path, it's rougher. It's rutted, it's pockmarked with stones. It's a little steeper, it's slower going, but it's prettier. There are roughly hewn stone bridges over fast-flowing creeks and scenic vistas over vast green valleys. And after several hours, I see another huge building in the distance. And when I finally reach it, I see the words emblazoned in tall bronze letters across the facade, living out of who God says I am. That's supposed to help me now? I've been trying to live out of what God's wants to be this whole time. Again, there's a huge double door, and there's a plaque underneath the knob, and this time there's only one word written over it, humility. Suddenly, every effort of this entire journey collapses on me. Tears I've kept back for so long well up, and I mumble through my sobs. I'm so tired. I can't do it. Help me, God. You're more wise, more right, more loving, and I have, uh, uh, and I have not let you love me. I fought so hard to impress you, and none of it did. And now I'm weary and empty and alone. I'm tired of performing. I'm tired of pretending. I can please you, uh, pretending I can please you by any amount of effort. Help me, God. After minutes in front of that door, I wipe my wet eyes and nose on my sleeve, and I run my fingers through my hair and desperately pull myself together. If there's anything, if this is anything like last time, I want to make a good first impression. And puffy eyes and tear-streaked cheeks won't do it. Finally, I reach for the knob, and inside it's much like the other room. The layout's nearly the same, although the decor's toned down. The gold leaf and the marble are replaced by warm carved wood and polished stone. The intricate details in every adornment are conspicuously missing. Replaced by tasteful simplicity. Instead of sofas draped in silk, it's overstuffed couches and chairs. There's more windows. Natural light pours in. I can see views outside that are breathtaking. Glass doors lead out onto porches and Adirondack chairs. And Another hostess approaches. She's like the hostess in the first room in that she's really gorgeous, but her beauty is natural. She smiles. I notice her eyes are smiling too. I realize with a start that the other hostess never smiled with her eyes. In a voice as beautiful as anything I've ever heard, she says above a whisper, hello, welcome to the room of grace. Then with a pause and a smile, she clasps my hands in hers. How are you? I know this trick. Last time I answered, I was handed a mask. This house is nicer, but I'm not convinced. Fine, I'm just doing fine. The whole room is watching me now. I see eyebrows tilted in skepticism. My heart sinks. I'm so tired of this. 
I turn towards the room, my eyes on him, and I yell out so everybody can hear. Hey, everybody, listen up. I'm not fine. I'm not fine at all. I haven't been fine for a long time. I'm tired, confused, angry, and afraid. I feel guilty and lonely, and that makes me even angrier. I'm sad most of the time. I pretend I'm not. My life is not working at this moment. I'm so far behind and freaked out about what to do next. I'm almost completely frozen. And if any of you religious kooks knew only half of my daily thoughts, you'd kick me out of your little club. So again, I'm not doing fine. Thanks for asking. I'll go now. <laughs> I turn toward the door, and before I have a chance to break down again, as I grab for the knob, a voice booms from the back of the room. That's it? That's all you got? I'll take your anger, guilt, dark thoughts, and, and raise your compulsive sin and chronic lower back pain. <laughs> oh, and did I mention I'm in the dead up to my ears? I also wouldn't know classical music from a show tune if it jumped out and bit me. You better get more than that little list. The room erupts in a warm, genuine laughter, and I know it's meant to embarrass me. The hostess leans in. She nudges me and kindly smiles. I think he means you're welcome here. I step into a crowd of welcoming smiles, and there's not a mask to be seen anywhere. Right away, I wish I'd known these people all my life. How many times do you think the Scripture, New Testament, mentions the word grace? Take a guess. 30 is a good guess. Take another guess. 133 times. 122 or 33? One of those two. 122. 122 times the New Testament mentions the word grace. You know who mentions it more than anybody else by far? And more per word usage? Who uses it the very most by far? Why is that so important? Who is Paul? He's the Pharisee of Pharisees. What's a Pharisee? It's a person that takes religious stuff really seriously. He's not a fundamentalist. That's too simple. That's how we think about it in modern terms. That's too simplistic, and we can write them off too quickly. Here's what they are. Remember, the Jews are a people who did not do what God wanted, and so they separated themselves in their choices. I've been doing things, and it's been separating me from God. So they separated themselves from God and their choices to the point that they get exiled to Babylon, and when they come back, they realize, man, we really need to do this stuff that God says to do. So the Pharisees get really serious about eating the way that he says to eat and dressing the way that he says to dress and taking the Sabbath and treating people a certain way and doing what they get really serious about doing the right things. And it's not a fundamentalism. They're just trying to get it right. It is much closer to the religious spirit that exists in this room than it is to anything that you could write off quickly. It is people just trying to do the right thing. Because if they don't, it's going to be a problem. See it? 122 times Paul mentions that. Grace, 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 grace. At some point in time, it might be interesting to figure out what he means by that. And I mean practically. I mean in a real world sense, because you do realize that when Paul talks about grace, the way he talks about it, that people hear what he says about grace and say this to him, you can't say that, because if you say that, you'll unleash the demons, you'll unleash the beast, and these people will go crazy. Read Romans. Over and over, he's being accused by other people, obviously, of saying, the things that you're saying are going to make everybody become sinners. At one point, he says, does this mean that people should sin even more so that God can love them even more? 
This is a radical understanding of grace that Paul has got. And he's making the point in a way that's absolutely critical for us. Here's what we're going to do right now. Remember Dr. Robbie came? He was a, he's a guy who, what he does, he's a psychologist, but he's got a whole lot of understanding about brain morphology. What's that mean? Simply, it just means the structures of the brain, the various parts of it and how they interact with each other and how it works. Okay? Now, Dr. Robin, when he came, he said something that was absolutely astounding. Here's what he said. He said, when you go and you poll people in the secular world and you ask them a fairly objective question about porn, he, this is the nature of the question. Have you stayed up all night dealing with a porn thing to the point that it was ruining, it was affecting the next day of your life because you were so tired? That's a pretty objective question. When he asked the world that, 10% of the people in the world said yes to that question. When he asked Christians that, how many do you think? 47%. Now that doesn't mean that Christians are involved in porn more than the world. What it means is the world doesn't have such a big issue with it. They just do it and that's it. It doesn't take all night. The Christian's doing what? Fighting it. This is not a sermon about porn, but I've got to tell you right now, if you've got a problem with this, listen carefully, because this is unbelievable what you're about to hear. It'll set you free. It's amazing. But I've got to tell you, this is the same kind of, what is your sin? Is it going to a certain person in a relational thing that isn't healthy for you, and you know it, but it's where you go? Is it, you know, is it going to the refrigerator to get some comfort food? Is it drinking something? Is it you know, taking some drug? Is it, what is it? Where do people go? See what I mean? Anywhere they go, the pattern's the same. So here's what I want to show you, because here's what Robbie did. When he comes, he says, oh, by the way, I want to show you that when, when Robbie said that, there's actually a scriptural foundation for it. Look, this is what the cure says. If all we bring to God is our moral striving, we're back at the same lie that put us in need of being saved from ourselves. In fact, let me say it another way. Nothing pleases God more than trusting him. Pleasing God is a byproduct of trusting him. How does it say it in the word? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. What comes first? Faith. What's another word for faith? Two words for faith. Trusting God. So without trusting God, it's impossible to please him. So if you try and please him, what this is saying is, that's what puts you into bondage. Well, no, that's just stupid. It can't be that way. Except that the Bible says it is, because Paul says this. It was the law that showed me my sin. I would have never known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. But sin used the commandment to arouse in me all kinds of covetous desires. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law. But when I learned the command not to covet, the power of sin came to life. In fact, this is the way the message says it. The law code started out as an excellent piece of work. What happened, though, was that sin found a way to pervert the command into a temptation making it a piece of forbidden fruit, taboo, the attraction that we have. We are made in our being with our Adamic natures to when the sign says don't walk on the grass, there's a lot of us that just want to walk on the grass. Now, most of us, if we get old, we quit walking on the grass. But when you're young, go to a college campus and look at the signs that say don't walk on the grass and see right by the sign the well-worn path. 
It makes it a piece of forbidden fruit. The law code, instead of being used to guide me, actually was used to seduce me. We got something going on here that's like just weird. So let's try and get some understanding of it. By the way, Paul says this 2,000 years ago as instructed by God who actually made us and knows us. 2,000 years later, we're actually doing brain mapping to understand morphology and how the brain works, how the pieces work together. And now we've got an understanding of this. It's just amazing. This is a brain, and there's a whole lot more to the brain than what we're looking at, but we're just looking at keeping it simple, okay? I want you to see this. Right down here, this is brain stem. This is autonomic. autonomic. This is the fact that you breathe. You don't think about breathing. It just happens. Your heart just beats, you know, stuff. That, that's the autonomic brain that's just making things happen. There's no thought whatsoever in it. And right above that, See, right above that, you know, like, like think about this. In Wall Street, when they do what they call micro-trading, or what's that called? Anyway, it's, it's just these really fine things. See, in, in Wall Street, they have a little cable that comes out of the trading floor, and it goes to the first computers. And these computers are so fast that even though in, in, in a nanosecond it's getting out to other people, this computer is making decisions and making trades before the next computer can make it. So think about it this way. The system that sits on top of the closest place to our bodies, the thing that keeps us from getting eaten by bears, is the limbic system. And the limbic system is this survival place. It's called emotions and learning, but understand, this learning is not learning about geography. This learning is bears are bad, run. <laughs> In fact, what this learning is more accurately is this, pain and pleasure. Pain is a threat to the survival of the brain. Pleasure means I'm not in threat. So the brain is always orienting to go after pleasure at a very primal, fundamental level. At the same place that it's avoiding pain. Now, frontal cortex, see, animals have this. They don't have all of this that we have, nearly to the degree. This is frontal lobe stuff, and the frontal lobe is this place that does things like this. Here's what it does. It says... Okay. Remember, boys don't develop fully in their frontal lobe until they get to about 24. And consequently, see what frontal lobe does? Frontal lobe says, if you jump off of a roof, you might actually land on the ground and break something. So don't jump off the roof. But before frontal lobe is fully connected, we get this. That's one of my favorite videos of all time. That explains frontal lobe all the way. I think the guy had some thought, I can grab a hold of the thing and maybe it'll work out. So now I just want to show you again. Frontal lobe, not quite there, in action. Okay? There you go. Okay? We got it? We got what frontal lobe is? Frontal lobe, according to this thing, is decision-making self-control. It's the place where it's telling us don't do that or do do that. Self-control, decision-making, higher control. I think it's very interesting that in that very large brain, there is one sliver of higher critical thinking. I think consequences and self-control. I think that that explains a lot about humankind. Right there. You know what I mean? If I was God, I would have put that like right above the brainstem. And then we wouldn't have survived because I would have been thinking, can I outsmart the bear? Should I do something else? You see what I mean? We would have been higher critical in our first response instead of run. 
See what I mean? The body is oriented, the brain is oriented down here at this emotional level to avoid pain. Getting eaten by a bear. You know, slamming your thumb on the thing. Here, here's, a, here's the thing. Because pleasure and pain are both in the limbic system, are at a primal level, they're not even at a conscious level. Because they're at this primal level, think about it, you get an itch, and oh man, you want to scratch it. Oh God, you really want to scratch it. Now you know, because the higher critical's kicked in, it says, if you scratch it, it'll make it worse. But what do you do just nine times out of ten? Particularly if you're a certain kind of person, right? You know what I mean? I can't, I can't, can't. you try everything. Oh, God, that feels good. Oh. Pleasure. There was pain, and now it's found pleasure. By the way, it doesn't have to be connected. You can be experiencing any kind of pain, and as long as you bring any kind of pleasure in, you're not about the pain anymore. The brain's saying it's chill, it's cool, it's good. See? Now, let me show you what that means. This is some things that the brain thinks of as painful. You and I will agree, but we've never thought about this at this low level. Here's some things. There's other kinds of pain too, right? But watch. The brain feels pain from what they call blast, bored. The limbic system. We think of boredom as a higher cognitive, right? I'm bored. What should I go do? But when the brain is bored, it's not being stimulated, and it's saying, do something. I'm bored. I'm experiencing pain. I'm not sure what's going on. Stimulate yourself so that I know what's going on. Here's another one. Lonely. If you're lonely, it's painful. Right? There's a pain, but it's at a low level. Anxious. The body's saying, get me pleasure. This is painful. Get me pleasure. Stress. Right? You're stressed out. Tired. How many people in here can say that when you're bored, lonely, anxious, stressful, and tired, you're more susceptible to temptation? See that? Literally, calorically, let me tell you, this is new research. Calorically, it takes, a whole lot of cal it takes a whole lot of calories, energy, in your body to make your frontal cortex work. The limbic system, almost automatic. Doesn't take any calories at all. So if you're well slept, if you've got your life in a place of peace, if you're well fed, you'll tend to make good decisions because your higher critical thinking processes will be in play. If you're tired... If you're malnourished, if you're underfed, if you're on a diet, you're going to be more susceptible to allowing the limbic system to make the decision for you. You'll be less capable of getting rid of it. In fact, let me, let me, let me really make this big, okay? Remember I said 10% in the world said they had a problem and 47% of Christians said it had affected their life in some tangible fashion? I don't just mean that they were guilty before God. I mean that it affected them in this objective way. Think about this now. This is the reason why every father in here ought to send this sermon to your sons. There's a whole lot of other reasons and there's a whole lot of other applications, but right now, this truth right here is... When you resist, and we're supposed to resist, 
But we don't do it the way God says. We do it the way we think. We resist temptation. When you're being tempted, what do you do? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I fight it. I fight it. I fight it. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. You know what you're actually doing when you do that? You're actually reinforcing in the limbic system the neural connections between pain and that particular pleasure. You're talking yourself into doing it. Literally. You're not just talking yourself into doing it. You're programming your brain into doing it. <sighs> wow. <laughs> right? I got a problem. <laughs> I still don't know quite what to do. We're going to get to that in one second. But I can say with Paul something. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who's going to free me from this life that is dominated by the limbic system? By this pain that has been reinforced by pleasure. And it can be any pleasure, remember. It doesn't matter. See what I mean? No matter if it's pain and you figured out some way to bring pleasure to your body, you're, the more you do that and the more, and you can say, see a particularly disciplined guy, and, and we will look at particularly disciplined people, will say, no, no, you can reduce the connections between getting that pleasure by not doing them. That will kill them off. That's what we think. That's actually not how the brain works. People that are really disciplined and naturally don't seem to have a big problem with sin the way that the rest of us seem to struggle with it. People that do that, you do something for me. You go and you talk to them personally and privately and you talk to them about one thing. How close do you feel to God? Not every time, but in the vast majority of times, people that are naturally disciplined will tell you that intimacy with God is actually a problem. Why? Because they actually have worked out a way in their own selves of taking care of this. Now, it is successful, it's successful in the 2 or 5% of the people that are that disciplined. In all the rest of it, it leads to failure. And we have this little marker of this guy that seems to not have a problem with it like I do. So it makes it even worse for us. So how do you get out of this? Because, I mean, after all, it is Paul that says this. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I do another. I'm doing things I absolutely despise. If I can't be trusted to figure out what's best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. The law, the thing that he told me, don't do that. <laughs> See, I can't stop myself and he's telling me not to do it. But I need something more than that. For I know the law, but I can't keep it. If the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. <laughs> right? I realize that I don't have what it takes in myself. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something's gone wrong deep inside of me. And it gets the better of me every time and more and more. And so he goes on to say, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who's going to free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Right here, I'm going, to give you a little, I'm going to give you a little trick. And I'm telling you, use this trick. And I'm not just saying guys with porn or girls have problems with it now too. But I'm, I'm talking about in every area of your life, whatever area it is that you feel like you end up doing something that isn't God's will, I'm going to give you a little trick right now. And then I'm going to talk about the stuff that's really important. 
But, but you know, it's nice to have a little trick in your bag too, right? So here's a little trick. If the problem is that you are being absorbed here in the limbic system, that you're in this battle and the limbic says, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, and you're trying very hard to push down your emotions, your desire, see, because your brain is saying, I'm in pain and I want this pleasure, and I've learned how to want this pleasure a lot, and so you're fighting and fighting and fighting. If that's where the nature, if that's where the location of the battle is, get out of that location. <laughs> it says... It says, flee from temptation. Here's what flee from temptation does not mean. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Here's what flee from temptation means. <laughs> That's what it means. It means run away. <laughs> Literally, run away. If you do something called reverse sequencing, when you are having a temptation in your life, and you don't want to do it, it's in your limbic system. You've got to run to the higher critical. Here's how you do it. Reverse sequencing. What's that mean? I'm going to pick the number 1,292. And now I'm going to count backwards. 1,291. 1,290. 1,289. 1,287. 1,000. Okay, I'm going to start at 100. That, that works. I'm going to start at 100. Now I'm going to, or I'm going to go backwards by threes. Okay, 97. 94, 93. <laughs> you know what I'm not thinking about anymore? That pleasure. I have literally moved where I'm thinking from resistance in my own flesh to the higher critical place. And the power of that will drop away. You can do it by reciting the alphabet backwards or whatever. Pick something you're not good at. Because then you'll have to work at it. Pick something that's going to make you work at it. The more you work at it, the more you're driving, you're fleeing from the place where the temptation's trying to get you. Now that's a trick. But it's a good trick. <laughs> so use it. But in the end, we need something deeper. Because you see what Paul says when he gets to the place to where he gets it. What Paul says is, is, oh, you see, watch this. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. Those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. What are you going to put your mind on? The temptation or God? In fact, now watch this. This please, by the way, that's not actually in there. It's just an NLT way of translating it. But I used it for, on purpose here, and I use it because it's valid. You remember when we had that thing, and I asked you to think about, I'm the one that, I, the one whom God loves? And you remember how it made you feel good? I just showed you a trick to take you from the limbic system to the higher critical system. But we're going to go right now, and we're going to reprogram the limbic. And here's how we're going to reprogram it. I'm bored, I'm lonely, I'm tired, I'm stressed, I'm whatever I am, right? I'm all these things. But you know what I need to do? There is a pleasure to be had in properly thinking about the God who loves me. 
instead of connecting it with sexual or food or, or a relationship or some other thing that's going to give me pleasure, I'm going to start reprogramming limit to start thinking. When I get into those places, I'm going to do something. God, could you come back up again? This is the way that we think about our relationship with God. He's on his throne. There's stuff that I do. I'm making a choice to walk away from him. Of course, it's creating a problem, right? This is the way that we think about it. And it's a lie. It's demonstrably not true. You know what is true? God came off of his throne, and he came over here, and it's not that he doesn't see the pile of crap, but he likes me. He loves me. He came over here in Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit who will never leave me nor abandon me. He came and he lives in us because he loves us. And now we're looking at the pile, not him against me, not me having to deal with, am I going to be guilty? You, you want to know? This is something, just one sec, God, okay? You want to know something that Robbie says? When you sin... And then you beat yourself up about it. I feel so guilty. Oh, I can't believe I did it again. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know what you're actually doing? You're creating pain that's going to need a pleasure. The statistics are people that beat themselves up are guaranteed to do the sin again. They're reinforcing the need to do the sin again because you're bringing yourself pain. Which is why, by the way, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, we don't have a priest who's out of touch with our reality. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Radical grace. Pauline. Radical grace. You cannot allow yourself to beat yourself up because it's a lie. God isn't over there looking disprovingly at you and you've got to work your way back to him. God is over here on this side with his arm around you going, that's what I'm going to do to help you. This is not an abstraction. I want you to understand something. Literally, as I was, God was teaching me this, I had moments. Julie was on a trip. I had moments. And instead of fighting, I started thinking, every time that that thought came to my mind, I started thinking about Jesus right beside me with his arm around me, looking at the same thing I was looking at with me, helping me. And I'm telling you, it just went away. One more time across. This is the lie from the pit of hell. This is why we're losing. We don't know who God is. We don't know who we are either, and we'll get to that in one second, but just come around one more time. I'm just telling you, there's victory to be had in Jesus Christ. Now, now, what work did I do to get out of my sin? I used a little trick and got myself into higher critical places, but then when I could do it, I started reprogramming my brain, and every time I have a thought about temptation, what I think about is that Jesus is on my side helping me because he loves me. And it's taking me out of the pleasure that I've programmed previously into a new pleasure. Thank you, God.
I said, I'm, I'm just way too long, I'm sorry. But let me just, I'm, gonna, I'm cutting things out, okay? Important things, but I think you're getting the point. The first thing we need to do, run away. Right? Do the trick. The second thing we need to do, know who God is. And we need to get that in our minds. And we need to not let Satan come in and do that other crap that he does because it gets us off base. There is a third thing that we need to do. We need to remember who we are. In that passage about why do I do the things I don't want to do and don't do the things that I do want to do, it says this. So now I am no longer the one doing it. It's sin living in me. This makes me think Dana Carvey. The devil made me do it. And it's so silly and it's so stupid. And isn't it so silly and stupid? It just happens to also be true. Now, it's not the devil necessarily, although he's tempting us too. But what I want you to understand, it's your own brain working against you. And God comes along in Paul 2,000 years before modern medical things do it. And it says this incredible thing. It's not you. You are a new person. Now, if I do what I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it. It's a sin that lives in me. And that's why there's no condemnation. The way that John says it, anyone, everyone who's been born of God does not sin because God's seed remains in him. He's not able to sin because he's been born of God. Other translations will read that other ways. Read it in the Greek. It says you do not sin. That doesn't make any sense. Of course I still sin. And what he's trying to say is, is no, there's a new you and there's an old you. That old you is that dead cottonwood that we talk about all the time. It's that hollowed out dead thing and the blood of Jesus Christ covers it. And as far as God is concerned, when he looks at you, he, he sees the blood covering a bunch of bad stuff, but then he sees the thing he made. And it's awesome. And what we've got to do is get out of our brains that we're failures. We've got to get into our brains that we're children of a father who's crazy about us who's helping us, who knows the struggles that we're going through, who is helping us get victory over them at every moment. Notice, we've just taken all of this out of human effort. Right? I mean, what have I told you to do? <laughs> Not really anything in your flesh. What I've told you is your flesh is hopeless. What does Paul say over and over? It's hopeless. Forget about it. Enter in to hope. Enter into truth because it'll set you free. There's another passage that I want to read to you, but it'd take 10 minutes, and I'm just not going to do it. But can I say, get a copy of this book. Think about the things that I've been talking about in here. It doesn't go into morphology and all that kind of stuff. That's this is the bonus points. But get a copy of that. It's called The Cure. Who wrote it? It's three different authors. When I looked it up, it's the only one. It's got a snake on the front, so that ought to be fairly memorable and yucky. Okay? Amen. I'm just telling you, it'll go, through, it'll go through a pathway of the way that we trick ourselves in all of these things that we've already talked about, and it'll describe it in, in, in this parabol, par, parabolic, that'd be the wrong word, but parabolish type language. And I